Hello and thank you for tuning in once again to the Reptile Living Room. I'm your host as always, John F. Taylor. And of course we are always brought to you by the wonderful and lovely Marsh McGinnis of Golden Gate Geckos. That's uh, Marsh McGinnis at Golden Gate Geckos. For all of your captive care and uh, her pediculture needs, as far as the Neferis, African Fat Tail, uh, Coleonyx, and Leopard Gecko species are concerned, check her out at GoldenGateGeckos.com. Give you lots of help, lots of information, uh, great prices, great customer service. I mean, really, there's nothing more that you need. You just need to go to the site, check it out, buy a gecko, and enjoy your pet. And uh, in today's episode, we are speaking with none other than Miss Kathy Love. Yes, that's right, Kathy Love, the corn snake queen, who has now moved on to Amazon Trevos. But that'll all be covered in the episode. Uh, Kathy's been doing this for. Uh, Serious long time, <laughs> to say the least. Um, she's one of the foremost experts in uh, the field of herpeticulture, in a lot of people's opinions. So there's really nothing more for me to say, uh, but let you, you know, take in the interview and uh, enjoy. Here's Kathy Love. So uh, today we're on the phone with uh, none other than Kathy Love of Corn Utopia, author of uh, at least one book that I'm aware of. I'm sure there's been more on corn snakes. Now, Kathy, how did you actually become the corn snake queen, I guess would be the best way to put it, because <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much what everybody knows you as, so. Well, partly being in the right place at the right time, I guess, uh, by virtue of how long we've been in the hobby, Bill and I, right. uh, which seems like forever at this point, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, we got to be among the pioneers and meet the real pioneers, the people like Applegate and uh, some of the early ones who started out in the 70s when we were youngsters. Uh-huh. And uh, we got to travel around with our living jungle exhibit and uh, learn from some of those early people. And uh, uh, when we finally settled down in Florida, I've just always been fascinated by colors. Uh, and I'm not much of an artist, so corn snakes and now Amazon tree boas are my palette of colors to work with. And that's how I settled into corn snakes when it was still kind of a new and exciting thing. And there were no such things as morphs yet. Right, right, right. Now, do you remember when you first unlocked the secret of breeding the corn snakes? Because I'm sure at that time, you know, it was still in its infancy and there wasn't a lot of information and things of that nature to be had as far as breeding goes. Well, it wasn't actually me. I I was one of the earlier people, but uh, Joe Laszlo was one of the first people who was uh, really excited uh, to uh, work with his Coca-Cola machine back at the San Antonio Zoo. Let's see, that was back in the 70s, and uh, that was when I first started traveling around at all, and I was just out of high school, and I met up with Joe, and uh, I learned some of the things from him. He was a real pioneer, and then some of the other people, like I mentioned, Applegate and a few others, uh, mostly out west, mm-hmm. uh, had first bred colubrids, and, uh, and they first uh, figured out that you had to change something about the day-length cycle. I can still remember in the 60s when I was in high school and had this dream of breeding snakes of some kind or another, and the curator of the Milwaukee Zoo at that time told me, well, it's not really possible to do it on a regular scale because in order to breed them, you've got to cool them down. And if you cool them down, they'll catch pneumonia and die. So it's just going to be luck when you breed them. So we've come a long way from there. Wow. No kidding. And just... The fact that you mentioned Joe Laszlo, I mean, I haven't heard that name in, gosh, uh, her, her pediculture circles for quite some time. And uh, 
for our listeners, <clears throat> Joe Laszlo is definitely one of the pioneers. I mean, um, the one book that I have that I constantly refer to still today is The Reproductive Husbandry of Pythons and Boas, which he was a part of. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't even tell you how many books that gentleman has put together and all the people that he's helped along the way. That must have been an incredible experience to work with him or meet oh, him. Joe was quite a character. Well, actually, Joe and I were an item at one time. Uh, oh. <laughs> soon after I was out of high school, I actually moved down and uh, lived with Joe for a while. And uh, uh, he also had a roommate who became my partner in the living jungle. And uh, at at one point or another, I just became friends with Joe. And uh, either way, when I was living with him or when I was friends with him, I got to learn an awful lot from him. Wow, no kidding. That must have been amazing. Now, um, as far as uh, the corn snakes go, you uh, we've been communicating via email, and you said you you still do some of the corn snakes, but not as heavy as you were at one time. <coughs> and mm-hmm. now you're doing the Amazon tree bows, is my understanding? I've always loved Amazon tree boas uh, because, like corn snakes, they offer a real palette of colors. Unlike corn snakes, they've barely been discovered at all yet. There's there's everything left to discover about them. And uh, I can remember back in the 80s when my husband Bill worked for Tom Crutchfield down when he was in here in Fort Myers. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, he and uh, Chris McQuaid, who has his own business now, used to rush in when the new shipments came in from South America and each try to claim the coolest uh, tree boas first. <laughs> and uh, so we both had them back in the 80s. We did and Chris did. Chris still has them now. And uh, I took a break from them during the 90s when we had Glade Terp because uh, during the Glade Terp days, we had employees taking care of our, our animals at the farm back at our house. Mm-hmm. And we worked at the shop all the time. So at that time, we got rid of pretty much everything except colubrids. We had a really nice, extensive, I mean, not extensive, but quite a few uh, beautiful uh, tree vipers of different types and also tree boas, and uh, it was just not the time to do it. So we got rid of all that and just did colubrids, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I kind of eventually turned that into just corn snakes. But I kept missing my tree boas and missing them, and so back in the, uh, oh, I don't know, early 2000s, I got back into them again. And uh, they're, they're just as exciting or more so than they ever were. Oh, I bet. I bet. Now, speaking of the Amazon tree boas, I've heard some um, information that these uh, the Amazon tree boas are capable of being crossbred or hybridized. Is that correct? Well, they have. They have been, but it okay. doesn't seem to be too easy. I remember, boy, I can't remember who it was now. Somebody brought a hybrid uh, with an emerald tree boa to the uh, Chicago Tinley Park show, I don't know, geez, a half dozen years ago or something like that, and uh, it was really beautiful. It kind of had the shape and size of an emerald, but the pattern and color looked like confetti all over it. So there have been a few, but people have tried, and most of the time have been unsuccessful. Uh, Hmm. And uh, uh, it's exciting, though, to see everything that's going on. It looks like there was a leucistic born for the first time ever this year. Oh, wow. Wow. That <laughs> that would be a sight to see, definitely. Oh, it would be. Actually, it's uh, Chris McQuaid from Gulf Coast Reptiles who has that. Really? Wow. I'm going to have to check that out later. I didn't even know about that one. Yeah, it's just a little guy yet because he was just born several months ago. Oh, sure. But, uh, but he's still got the parents and everything, so we're really looking for that to be 
something really new and exciting on the horizon for tree boa keepers. I should mention, by the way, anybody who is interested in tree boas, uh, I have a partner, Mike Heinrich, who keeps nothing but tree boas up in Chicago, and uh, we started a forum together called AmazonAlliance.com, but you have to put a hyphen between Amazon and Alliance or you'll get down to things that have to do with Amazon Indians. Okay. Uh, but uh, we started that forum, and the main reason we started it is because when I got back into tree boas, every forum that I looked for was always all tree boas or tree boas and pythons or arboreals, and all the beautiful green things kept dominating every discussion of tree boas. Right. You know, that's the big money things, either the chondras or the uh, emeralds. And uh, I really wanted a place where there was nothing but Amazon tree boas being talked about. Well, maybe in the off-topic section you could talk about other things. Oh, sure. But something where they could dominate. And uh, it's really turned into a place for Amazon uh, aficionados just to get together and talk to their hearts content about it. So definitely check it out if anybody's interested in the tree boas. Oh, very definitely, very definitely. <coughs> what made you start keeping reptiles in the first place versus you know, what most people consider cute and cuddly, you know, bunnies and rabbits and things. Uh, well, I've always loved the cute and cuddly, too, especially cats and dogs and uh, birds and, you know, I guess pretty much everything. Okay. My father tells me that when I was about three or four years old and we were walking down the street and I saw a big, vicious, horrible-looking dog and I'd run up to it and throw my arms around it and say, doggy, doggy. So I, I've just always liked the animals. But I always kind of liked the ones that I felt were misunderstood and that sort of thing, so I was kind of drawn to things like snakes and the animals nobody loves, and uh, I got my very first one uh, surreptitiously when I was in <laughs> uh, sixth, fifth, sixth grade, maybe something like that, and uh, it was a garter snake that I bought for 50 cents at the local pet store, and I wasn't allowed to have it, so I kept it in my closet and named it Vladimir for some reason, I don't know why. And uh, unfortunately, Vladimir didn't last a long time. Right. But that was my first uh, my first time actually having a snake. My father has probably uh, always regretted the fact that when I was in kindergarten or first grade and I got chased home with a snake uh, by one of the uh, local kids uh, along with my girlfriend. And, of course, I ran because I hadn't seen one before up close. And my father said, no kid of mine is going to be afraid of snakes. So he took me down to the neighbor's house, and for some reason, I have no idea why, uh, they had a garter snake that appeared to be about 10 feet long to me, uh, and it was in a clothespin bag hanging up on the clothespin. And they took it out and made me handle it, and, uh, and look what it led to. Wow. <laughs> From garter snakes to a business to Parents, Amazon. Parents, <laughs> exactly. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> Don't ever let your kids handle snakes. They'll become snake wranglers. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> My father got more than he bargained for, that's for sure. Oh, uh, well, I'm sure he couldn't be more proud with the uh, success that you've had. I mean, my gosh, that is just awesome. Now, it's what... been exciting. It's been so exciting to be in it on something almost at the beginning before there was such a word as herpetoculture. Yeah. And to see the first people, you know, get started on it and now to see it having come so far. Yeah. Now, that's something that's kind of interesting, uh, a topic. What are some of the major uh, the changes that you've seen just within the industry itself? Well, there's from within and from without. Mm -hmm. uh, from within, it's become so mainstream, and that's had both good and bad points. You know, on right. the one hand, 
you can meet so many people and our Herp Society uh, that we're very much a part of here in Fort Myers uh, is, a, is a very family-oriented affair, and we have mostly pet keepers rather than, you know, serious students of herpetology type things. Right. And, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a different mindset than the academics or the field collectors or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's gone very mainstream, and that, that's been good in some ways to open it up to a lot of new people. But it's also resulted in what my husband Del likes to call deli cup herpers. <laughs> and those are people that kind of, uh, I guess, kind of like the people who go to the super, supermarket and think that uh, meat is made in plastic containers. Right. Uh, a lot of the deli cup herpers never saw the animals in the wild and don't even equate them to animals in the wild and may not even know what continent their pet is from. Uh, you know, and it, it is a shame in a way to kind of have that disconnect with nature. On the other hand, it shows that the animals are becoming more like domestic animals. Nobody really needs to know the history of cats or dogs or horses in order to be a successful keeper of a dog or a cat or a horse. Very so true. It's a double-edged sword. Uh, from without, we have a big problem, and, and that's the animal rights agenda. Right. And uh, I, I like to call them the humaniacs. <laughs> that's exactly what they are. And they're bent on our destruction. Uh, a lot of people don't even understand, even reptile keepers, let alone the general public, <clears throat> doesn't understand that a group like the Humane Society of the United States, which says that it's an animal welfare organization, is actually an animal rights organization, and they put out a book a few years ago uh, which looked like how to keep reptiles or keeping reptiles, but it was actually about why the reptile trade should be banned. And on the very last page of the book, which you can see the quote on my website under the hidden enemy on my website, uh, they say that they want to end the reptile uh, trade and the reptile hobby totally. So they, they themselves have made themselves our sworn enemy, and they have a lot of money. They have... $100 million. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, you know, and, and they've been very successful in getting the media all excited and the lawmakers, and you've got people like Senator Bill Nelson uh, showing a, a skin of a Burmese python, saying that it has a mouthful of fangs with uh, uh, fish hooks on the end. Right. Telling that to the legislators. You know, it, it's just really gotten out of control, and we're just totally under attack. I'm not sure how we're going to survive this. Right, right. Now, <clears throat> as far as your personal experience with uh, <laughs> reptiles and uh, other scaly critters, um, <laughs> now I understand that, you know, at one time you used to keep untold numbers of corn snakes at one point. About 10 zillion, I think. <laughs> From some of the photographs I've seen, I believe it. <laughs> so, looking back on that, um, what was involved in in your daily routine at that time versus looking at it now with the Amazon tree boas? Is there much difference? or? Well, the big difference is now that I've scaled way back on all live animals of any kind, and there have been several reasons for that. Mm -hmm. um, oh, some of the reasons are, for one, I'm not getting any younger. Been there, done that. Mm -hmm. uh, for another, uh, the recession has just made it more cost-effective, kind of that less is more. Right. If you have a, a jillion of them, you have to sell them, especially corn snakes. I mean, no. the wholesale price of corn snakes, and even the show one of the show price one at a time at a lot of the reptile shows has been five or ten or twelve dollars each. 
for some of the more common and even semi-common varieties, and it's just not cost-effective for me to want to do that much work for that little return. Right. Uh, and so I'm, I'm doing it more uh, more like what I like. And, and with corn snakes, right. I'm not as interested anymore on the cutting-edge colors unless it appeals to me personally. Again, it's like that. I, I'm that artist with the palette who can't draw a snake that you could tell it's a snake and not a lizard probably, <laughs> but I can make pretty colors. And so I'm more interested in just keeping animals that I think are really beautiful and making more beautiful ones. And rather than uh, doing so much with uh, new morphs, mm -hmm. I'd rather tweak the ones through selective breeding, like, for instance, the old standby like Okatee corn. I mean, right. they don't get more beautiful than that, but you can always try to make each generation a little more beautiful than the last. Sure, sure. Now, in your opinion, uh, what's the hardest part about being successful in the herpeticulture industry? Wow. Um, if, are you talking about uh, from a monetary point of view? Well, uh, from monetary and reputation-wise, you know, because there seems to be a lot of um, people that come into this industry and, you know, pick up the latest, greatest thing, you know, for instance, when the blizzard lizard you know, craze hit. Uh -huh. It's like every time he turned around, there was somebody, you know, that was breeding these things and selling them for thousands of dollars, and then all of a sudden, now you can go find a blizzard lizard for, you know, 20 bucks. Uh-huh. And it's like, you know, there's a lot of these, what I call fly-by-nighters. Uh-huh. <laughs> that, you know, some of them have really good intentions about working with the animals, but they, I think they're expecting all the wrong things too quickly. Well, I think that's true, and uh, especially with anything that uh, people did make quite a bit of money off of, like ball pythons and some of the other boas and pythons, which have always been a higher dollar than colubrids. Right. Uh, no matter what new morph it is, whether it's a lupic or a piebald or anything else, if it's in a boa or a python, it's automatically going to be worth a whole lot more than if it's in a colubrid. Oh, And uh, it's just it's that way. I don't know exactly why. I guess because they're bigger and more impressive to some people. Mm -hmm. But anyway, when people would get into the things that were worth a lot of money, that means they invested a lot of money, and they tended to look at it more as an investment. Uh, most of the people who keep corn snakes, and even Amazon tree boas, they're worth more than corn snakes on the whole, but, uh, but they're not quite as prolific. And the people who are doing those might want to do it as uh, usually a side business. Very few people would break corn snakes as their main business. Right. Uh, so most of them are looking at it as a hobby that might pay for itself, and if they're really lucky, maybe they'll have a little left over. But that's a totally different mindset than the people who got into all the ball python morphs and some of the other expensive things mm -hmm. and put a mortgage on their house to do it. Right. Uh, you know, they had a different mindset from the outset. Mm -hmm. And uh, to do to have a good reputation, well, that's simple. It's just like any business, whether you're in the hardware business or anything else. Uh, you know, you just uh, are really into doing what you're, you know, what it is that you're interested in, mm -hmm. and providing a really good product for people and really good service, and doing what you say you will. You know, ethics, longevity. Uh, I don't think it matters whether you're selling cars or snakes or cats or anything else. But mm -hmm. I think uh, reputation, you know, it's just a matter of ethics and customer service and longevity to some extent and getting your name out there. We have some friends who have been breeding for a long time of various different kinds of reptiles. 
but they're kind of quiet and they either just wholesale or they're just they're not extroverted they don't get out there they don't write much they don't uh, they don't go to forums much and so mm -hmm. nobody knows about them except for a few people so that's the other thing if you want to have a, a reputation then you've got to get yourself known one way or another right monetarily that's a whole different story especially in this recession and uh, all I can say now is uh, I think reptiles in general make a lot better part-time business than full-time business these days right <clears throat> and and the live reptiles that's what we've endeavored to do here is make it more of a part-time business and uh, expand Bill's photography and mm -hmm. uh, he, he's actually down working with uh, a film crew in Everglades right now, and you know that's another sideline. And we sell all kinds of books and kids' toys of reptiles, and you know whatever, just a lot of different things mm -hmm. instead of relying just on live animals. Right. Now speaking of the writing, um, how did it come about that you did publish uh, the book on corn snakes? Well, it helped that Philippe Beaujolais was a pretty good friend, and he was the ah. one that owned that business. Right. And uh, we had known Philippe for ages, even back, uh, Bill knew him back when Philippe lived in Florida, which that would have been back in the, the uh, 80s, I guess. No, the 70s. And uh, anyway, so when, when Philippe first started publishing these little books, it was the first time that anybody had ever published something beyond the TFH book that, you know, was just a very generic thing that wasn't a great help for particular species. Mm -hmm. Philippe was the first one who ever went out of his way to find authors who specialized in breeding and keeping the particular thing that was being written about. And uh, we were really impressed. And so when, it, uh, well, he had the first corn snake book that somebody else wrote. And uh, then when he went to doing a little bit bigger one, uh, we had been into corns long enough that we were well known for them. And uh, we approached Philippe, and we got to do it. And then after we wrote the first incarnation of our book, The Corn Snake Manual, uh, right. that was the very last book that Philippe published. And then he sold it to Bowtie, which is the same publishing group that does Reptiles Magazine, right. uh, which Bill has been a columnist for since the very first issue of the magazine. Right, right. Yeah, he's pretty much the uh, icon of uh, <laughs> Reptiles Magazine now. Yeah, he's, he, I'm not sure if anybody else has been there from the very first issue. Some have got, come and gone, but um, uh, it, it's been really great for him to uh, have that visibility because he really enjoys writing and enjoys photography even more. Oh, yes, definitely. And if you, if by some way or somehow, <clears throat> our listeners are not familiar with Bill Love's photography, you can pretty much pick up any Reptiles magazine and just flip through the pages and you'll find at least... <laughs> Half a dozen of his photos in there somewhere. Yeah, he's pretty well represented uh, in in uh, reptile circles for for photography. And uh, if you want to see more of his work, you can go to BillLovePhotography.com. Oh. And uh, he's got a whole website about his photography. Oh wow, very nice. Now, uh, going back to the am <coughs> excuse me, the Amazon tree boas. Uh huh. <coughs> and kind of a little off topic. What is your experience with? Um, the aggression level, I guess, is basically the best way to put it. Because, you know, you always see, you know, this really beautiful snake, and it's an arboreal, and most people automatically associate arboreal, vicious, stay away from it. Well, the wild-caught ones, in my experience, are pretty much face-eaters. 
and that's what they live for. Okay. Uh, but that's the wild-caught ones. Now, in the past, uh, years ago, that's pretty much all you could get was wild-caught right. ones. And uh, I, when I've raised up babies uh, from captive breeding, though, or even baby wild-caught ones, I've found that uh, they can be reasonably tame when you raise them up and you handle them a little bit. And all of my, my uh, two- and three-year-olds that I've raised up, or four-year-olds, or however old they are right mm -hmm. now, uh, they're all tame enough that I can handle them, take them out, uh, you know, clean their cage and so forth, and very rarely will they bite. And if they do, it's more like a little, you know, uh, a faint kind of just trying to uh, let you know that they're tired of it. They bump you or right. scratch you or something with the tooth. Uh, so, But on the other hand, they're not quite so tame that I would just hand them to a, a kid. Because right. if you move fast and scare them, they will kind of bite a little bit. Right, right. But that's not so terrible. I mean, if you want a snake that you can throw around your neck and watch TV with, get a ball python. Right. Uh, but if you want a snake that's a beautiful display animal and easy to take care of <clears throat> and comes in all different kinds of colors oh gosh, and yeah. can be reasonably tame but not as really a handling snake, then an Amazon tree bow is for you. Definitely, yeah. And I definitely agree with the, the uh, color patterns. It seems like... Every time I turn around, I see a new photo of some type of new color pattern that, you know, pops up somewhere. Now, speaking of uh, being a face-eater type of snake, uh -huh. <laughs> which I love that term, by the way, <laughs> why do you think some people have such a high um, fear of snakes in particular, or reptiles, I, could, I guess we could broaden it a little bit? Well, it's always been debated if it's uh, anything inborn into humans and into our genome or if it's a learned behavior. And I think it's mostly learned. However, I, I do remember a study they did with uh, either chimpanzees or, or some other kind of primate mm -hmm. that they showed them snakes and they were scared of them as just an instinctual thing. But uh, for people, I think it's partly because it's something they don't understand and it's very different that there's no legs. <clears throat> that was one of the reasons I was attracted to them, though, is because they're so graceful. And I, I was just mesmerized as a kid watching a snake move so effortlessly. It seemed like it was just doing it by magic or something. Right. But for some people, they find that creepy. <clears throat> and then on top of that, some people have this, you know, religious thing about snakes and the devil and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, some people are just scared by what they know nothing about, and they see no reason to change I see. Okay, that's fair enough. Now, um, as far as the Amazon tree boas and the, um, are concerned, what would be like the top five things that you would tell somebody that was interested in keeping this species? Well, it probably wouldn't be the best choice for a first-time snake keeper. Uh, they're not that difficult. Uh, they seem like a really natural progression uh, for, for corn snakes keepers who want something else that's still colorful and highly variable, but kind of the next step up and maybe just a little bit more challenging, but not bad. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that would be a good time for somebody to get one, and somebody who wants to progress on to other arboreals that might be a little bit trickier. Mm -hmm. uh, from my experience, which I haven't had a lot of them, most, but I've had a couple, it seems like Amazon tree is pretty much like everything that emeralds do as far as uh, conditions and keeping. The only difference is if you make mistakes or you get a little bit lax, the Amazons usually forgive you and still thrive anyway, mm -hmm. and the emeralds may not. 
So there are there are good beginner arboreal species if you're thinking about really getting into a lot of different arboreal snakes like emeralds and chondros and things like that. Oh, okay. <coughs> now let's uh, take it one step further. Let's say somebody wants to get into this as a breeder. Is there any particular um, things to watch out for, or any particular elements of breeding Amazon tree boas that you could share? Without giving away trade secrets, of course. <laughs> oh, there's not really any trade secrets. If, uh, boy, if anybody has any question whatsoever on Amazons, and they post it on our forum, a half dozen people will probably answer oh, from wow. their experience. There, there's, there's no trade secrets, and uh, and Mike is one of the sharingest people of all. He's kept and bred far more Amazons than I have, and uh, he is so free with his knowledge, and so is everybody else on our forum. It's just a great group of people. So, uh, no, there's no trade secrets, but the main thing is, uh, even living here in Florida, they, they do like a lot of humidity, but of course you can't let it get moldy and, uh, you know, fungusy and things like that. But uh, even more so than corn snakes, if you don't give them enough humidity, they're going to have a heck of a time with skin shedding. Right. And uh, that's, that's one of the cues that you're, that you're on target if they're shedding their skin well without a problem and the cage is not all damp and moldy then you probably have that down pretty well. But <clears throat> that does seem to be one of the things people have problems with. And for a new keeper, getting a, a captive-born baby that's already well started, uh, for, for me, the only time I've ever had problems with Amazons generally has been when they're first born and mm -hmm. getting those first couple meals into them because a certain percentage of them uh, just uh, don't want to start. And you have to try different things. Uh, I've even had some start on uh, uh, some uh, chicken gizzards and hearts cut up on, on uh, forceps, and sometimes that gets them excited, sometimes the lizards, sometimes the mice. There's wow. all different tricks, which there's a bunch of threads about that that people sure. can read about. But once they get those first <clears throat> few meals into them, they're usually really hardy. If you even come close to the parameters that everybody lists, they'll usually do great for you. Wow, that's awesome. <clears throat> Now, so the beginner shouldn't get the newborn and shouldn't get the wild caught. Other right. than that, you know, I think they'll do great. Okay. Very nice. Now, one question we always like to ask all of our guests is if money was no object and you had, you know, everything necessary that you needed, uh, if you haven't already, <laughs> what would be the ultimate species of reptile that you would keep if you could? Wow. It's funny because there's so many that I have kept. Exactly. So many <laughs> That's why that it's I, a hard question for Kathy Love to answer. <laughs> but then there's so many that I haven't kept, too. Oh, okay. And probably never will. Uh, and, and some of them are not even particularly expensive ones. Uh, you know what I would really like to do, and, and this isn't really a matter of money, but I would love to promote uh, uh, more of the, the, the varium type, like the Europeans and also the American uh, Aquarius, fish keepers, are so far ahead of us, yes. uh, reptile people. Actually, the dart frog people are where we should be heading towards. But the Europeans and all, with, with all their beautiful vivaria and plants, mm -hmm. and I've played around with this with the Amazon tree boas, and it's something I hope to do more of in the future, is uh, set them up in the same way the dart frog people and the aquarium people and, and the European uh, herpers have done. Uh. Uh, and that, that's kind of what I would like to devote more money and time to. 
actually, Philippe de Rogelie was way ahead of his time on this sort of thing. Yes. Even way back when, you know, he and his mother were doing these beautiful vivaria. And uh, that's something that I would kind of like to, to participate in and, and uh, promote even mm-hmm. more than a particular species. Well, besides, of course, my Amazon tree bows. Oh, sure. <laughs> now, um, who is your, or uh, is or was, I should say, uh, your greatest inspiration for choosing the path or sticking with the path of reptiles? Well, for choosing, you know who had a big huge influence on me, and I've always wanted to see him again since I've been an adult, and, and I don't even know if he's still with us now. My uh, high school biology teacher, uh, Mr. Dwight Shanks, up in Wisconsin, uh, had a boa constrictor in his classroom, and every summer somebody got to take the boa home, and uh, I got to do that between ninth and 10th grade, I believe, and uh, shortly after that is when I convinced my father that uh, it was time that maybe I could get some snakes of my own. So he had a big influence. Uh, I'd been trying to get pet reptiles for years, ever since I'd had my poor Vladimir. Right. And my father kept telling me, just wait until you're 14 and you start liking boys, and then you'll forget about all this stuff. <laughs> and when I was 14, I said, I'm 14 and I still like snakes better than boys. Now can I have my snakes? <laughs> and so he let me keep the high school biology snake for the summer, and... Uh, uh, my biology teacher didn't know a lot about snakes, but he had that one, and he knew something. He knew more than I did. Right. And so he was quite an inspiration to just kind of learn more about it. That's awesome. And uh, what would you say, uh, what does the future hold for the industry uh, of herpeticulture and yourself as a breeder of uh, Amazon tree boas? Where do you, see the, where do you think we're going to end up in? The next generation, I guess, would be the best way to put it. Well, um, boy, I really hope that reptile keepers can band together to fight all this ridiculous legislation that's coming down. And, and as a libertarian, I see this as more than Big Brother just coming down on us reptile keepers. I see the uh, overregulation and erosion of all kinds of freedoms mm-hmm. in every. But but of course, the reptiles are what we're most familiar with. Uh, and, and I just think that people need to start looking at this and, and stop thinking, well, you know, today they're going to ban pythons, and I don't keep pythons, so I don't have to worry about it. And then they're banning uh, this or that or the other thing, so I don't have to worry about it. And, and then when they come for you, there's nobody left. It's just right. a little thing. And uh, I, I think that we need to also get together with fish keepers and bird keepers and, you know, all these people. We all have similar interests. Mm-hmm. And I'm really encouraged to see a U.S. Ark starting to get uh, some money and some, you know, some voice. <clears throat> Unfortunately, right. they don't have anywhere near the clout that HSUS, and Ugh. there's only one, you know, there's yeah. PETA and all the others. Uh, so we have so little voice compared to our enemies, and, and I just really want to see, uh, you know, more and more of this. Uh, every year at Daytona now for the last, well, the, the last several years, our group of us corn snake fans have gotten together and had a dinner, and, and it's been a lot of fun. We've, we've had great fun doing that. But the last two years, we've not only done that, but we've gotten together ahead of time and got all kinds of donated items and animals and so forth and uh, had a raffle and uh, uh, with all the proceeds going to U.S. Art. 
and uh, I think the last two years we've raised somewhere in the neighborhood of about $1,800 each year just from a group of corn snake fanciers for U.S. ARC, and I'd like to see that repeated over and over by, you know, every other group of leopard gecko breeders and boa breeders and everybody else. Right. <clears throat> U.S. ARC really needs our support. I think that, uh, I think that almost sounded like a challenge, Kathy, if, uh, we can get some uh, boa breeders and leopard gecko breeders out there. Let's see if we can uh, beat the corn snake breeders and see how much money we can all raise for U.S. ARC. Yeah. Now, I do have to say uh, that the that people, several breeders of, uh, of ball pythons mm -hmm. really helped out, and they donated some really nice ball pythons uh, both years to us. And even though we're a bunch of corn snake fans, most of us also keep something besides corn snake. Oh, sure. And... Uh, uh, I would say out of all the groups, and, and uh, kingsnake.com was nice enough to let us advertise on there in the forum that we were having it, and I put it on their uh, ball, ball python forum, and I got more response there in donated items than I got on any of the other ones, even including corn snake forum. So, so they did step up to the plate. All right. I would love to see all those different groups do their own thing wherever yeah. and whenever they want to do it so they could multiply our efforts and uh, just really support U.S. ARC. Everybody, go and join it and, and uh, just donate to them whatever you can and help them out in any way you can. Very definitely, very definitely. Now, uh, <clears throat> as far as uh, with the future of the breeding of the Amazon tree boas, is there any particular projects that you're working on right now as far as color morphs or...? Well, I only, I don't have that many myself. Okay. Uh, and uh, right now... Uh, because uh, we we hopefully are maybe going to be moving out to the west sometime soon. Mm -hmm. So all of mine are currently on loan with Mike up in Chicago, and he's breeding a couple of my females, I think, to one of his tigers, and uh, breeding some of my youngsters together for the first time because they're just coming of age now. Right. So right now I'm just trying to selectively breed to make prettier ones. Oh, okay. I'm not doing any cutting edge. There's not really too many more. Oh, you know what I should mention is uh, the uh, boa, the Amazon tree boa breeders are only the second ones ever to have our own registry, like the AKC. Uh, the first really? One, the first one is corn snakes. And uh, huh. uh, Chuck Pritzel, who does the annual corn snake uh, morph guide every year, mm -hmm. he knows more about this than I do or any of the other breeders, I think, because he researches it and he comes up with all the newest things that are going on and and, uh, you know, so he really keeps up on this. So if anybody wants to know the newest and best stuff, uh, you want to get the annual corn snake morph guide, which we sell, and so does Chuck. But even more importantly, he started the very first ongoing registry that's similar to the AKC. And uh, if you go to herpregistry.com and you can choose the corn snakes or the Amazon tree boas, and he did the tree boa one for us at Amazon Alliance, and uh, uh, did it kind of to our specifications and everything. So eventually he's going to add more species, and if there's any group out there that really wants to do something like this, you might even be able to work with them. Uh, but I think that is the, the coolest thing to kind of show that we're domesticating our animals, and also a few generations down the line, when you get some weird-looking thing, at least you can go back and there's a pictorial pedigree Right. Figure out. Oh, you know, that great great grandfather looked like that too. Right. Right. Wow. Oh, is that cool or what? That is totally awesome. I'm just. I'm gonna check that out as soon as we get off the phone here. 
Yeah, I, I think you'll be impressed, especially if you look at the corn snake one, because that's been around longer. And yeah. he's already got, I don't know, seven or 8,000 uh, registered, oh. uh, which the last time I looked at the tree bowl one, we had several hundred, and we didn't have a 1,000 yet, but I haven't looked at it for a while, so we might by now. Wow. But, you know, and these have only been, the, the registry for the tree bows has been around for less than a year, I think, and the one for the corn snakes has only been around for maybe four years. So that's not very long to have that kind of participation. No kidding. Man, that's amazing. Now, uh, before we let you go, just so our uh, listeners can go check out your websites, because I know you have a few, um, the one I'm most familiar with is cornutopia.com. Right, and that's the one for my corn snakes, and I also sell a number of books and supplies. Oh, I should mention that uh, uh, Chuck Pritzel's wife, who we were just talking about Chuck, mm -hmm. uh, Connie Hurley is a veterinarian, although she's a, a surgeon for cats and dogs and things, but she's a corn snake breeder, and she has been so valuable to the corn snake community because she has that foundation of knowledge that only a vet would have, and also the practical experience of being a corn snake breeder. And I have been talking with her for a long time about, uh, you know, feeding baby corn snakes that didn't want to start. So she's made up some uh, some veterinary-approved feeding tube kits now, and that's one of the things oh, I have wow. on my website. Uh, so I have just all kinds of different things that can be helpful for, for raising corns and, and assorted things. Very nice. And uh, now the other website that you have now is called Amazon-Alliance.com. Correct. Okay. Uh -huh. Very cool. And uh, then we, then I also have uh, ReptileRally.com if y'all want to come down and spend a day uh, looking for reptiles and learning about reptiles right here on our 20 acres. Wow. Now that would be a tr <laughs> that that would be awesome. If any of our listeners, please do the reptile rally and let us know how it is <laughs> because we just don't have the time to get out there. That would be awesome though. And if we do sell our property and move out west, then we're probably going to set something up similar out west, but maybe uh, in some places that Bill has been uh, checking out out there that won't be out right on our property. Oh, wow. That would be awesome. Yeah, because I don't think there is a place in the United States that Bill hasn't been yet photographing or herping or, you know. Uh, any place that's really interesting, herpetological-wise, Bill has been there with camera in hand right, many right. times over. <laughs> exactly, like at least five or six times, you know. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, I appreciate you uh, spending some time to chat with us, Kathy. Uh, it's been a blast. I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. This is going to be really awesome when, it, uh, when we get this done. So uh, any closing thoughts for our listeners as far as uh, what we can do to promote the herpeticulture and uh, some of the organizations we should be supporting? Well, it, it has been great. It's been a lot of fun talking to you. I, I just ask everybody to do whatever they can to uh, discourage any friends and relatives from uh, uh, donating to any group that hates us and wants to see our demise. Right. And uh, if your grandmother is sending money to the Humane Society of the United States, tell her just what she's doing. Of course, if they get rid of us, then eventually they'd like to get rid of all animal agriculture. And the last the last thing would be cats and dogs because a lot of their donors are cat and dog people, but they don't realize that they're donating to end their own right. cats and dogs even. Uh, so, you know, encourage all, all of your friends and relatives to support us instead of contribute to our death and uh, uh, support U.S. ARC. And if you have any interest in uh, 
in uh, Amazon Tree Boas. Definitely come and check us out on the forum because we, we really want to see more members. Oh, and if you're in the Chicago area, Mike is going to have a table up at the uh, Reptile Fest that the Chicago Herb Society does. Oh, wow. It's for Amazon Alliance. So oh, nice. So say hi to him. Yeah, very definitely. And I will make sure uh, also for our listeners, put all the links that you mentioned uh, right there in the show notes so they can actually just click on them right from the show. Okay, well, in that case, put on bluechameleon.org, too. Because of course. That's uh, Bill's uh, site that he takes people to Madagascar for on tours. Right, right. And I've heard some of the stories uh, coming from those trips, and that that's a lifetime experience that you guys don't want to miss, definitely. It is. It's expensive, but it is the trip of a life. But it's so worth it. I mean, you know, you're hanging out with Bill Love photographing reptiles. I mean, does it get any better than that if you're into the oh. reptile industry? <laughs> and the chameleons are outside your hotel room door. You don't even have to walk <sighs> very far. I mean, they're everywhere. And beautiful. Oh my gosh, that is awesome. So cool. I appreciate it, Kathy. Okay, well, thanks a bunch for having me. It was great. All right, thank you. And well, folks, there you have it. That was uh, Kathy Love of Corn Utopia and various other websites, as are all linked in the show notes. So, uh, once again, we are brought to you by Marsha McGinnis of Golden Gate Geckos for all of your nefarious uh, African fat tail leopard geckos and colonic species captive care needs. Do check her out at GoldenGateGeckos.com. That's GoldenGateGeckos.com. Once again, we do encourage you to drop by the show, uh, of course, in the show notes. Uh, drop some comments. Let us know how we're doing. Rate us up on iTunes. It really does do a lot for us when you guys do uh, leave comments. Let us know what you think of the uh, specific episodes. Even drop by and let us know who you want to hear on the uh, on the next show. See you next time in the Reptile Living Room. <laughs>